Turn your Bibles on this first Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of Hope, to Romans chapter 4. There are two words that dominate chapter 4, reckoned and righteous. Reckoned righteous, Romans 4. Paul has already made it clear in this epistle that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have been good enough to experience the glory of God. He's also told us in chapter 2 that there is no partiality with God, that we're all condemned. Those who have the Jewish law are condemned by the law, and those who don't have the Jewish law are condemned by not obeying what they know, what is right. The law written on their heart, chapter 2, verse 12. At the end of chapter 2, he reminds us that we're not part of God's people if we're circumcised of the flesh, but rather it is a mark of the heart, a circumcision of the heart that makes us part of the people of God. At the end of chapter 3, He reminds us that Jesus has paid the price to set us free. But he knows that nonetheless, the Jews will keep pointing back to Abraham. So he turns the argument of Abraham upside down. The Jews were arguing, Abraham is our forefather. So we don't have to live a life of faith. When I was graduate assistant of an institution of higher education, I prepared tests for and graded a New Testament survey class of about 50 to 75 students. And in that class was a relative of one of the most famous preachers in all the world. This student is going to breeze through this class, I said to myself. Well, on the contrary. Had it not been for a curve applied at the end of the course, this direct descendant of a world-famous theologian would have failed a basic New Testament survey class. What Abraham is saying is this. Don't rely on your father or your grandfather for your righteousness. All that matters is where you yourself are on your journey of faith. In fact, I was so uneasy about this student failing the class, I said to the professor, I just want you to know from me up hand, I'm keeping the grade book, you're about to give an F to the descendant of, and I filled in the preacher's name. To which you replied, no, I'm not giving them anything. They are earning the grade that they earn. That's what Paul is saying here. Let's outline this chapter. First of all, verses 1 through 5, found grace. Found grace. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the one who works his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. 
But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? According to the flesh is clearly a reference to the lineage, the family tree of the Jews that Abraham's natural offspring, the Jews, took for granted that their forefather was Abraham. And therefore, they were God's chosen ones, the rightful heir of God's promise to Abraham. And having refused the arrival of their redeemer, they point back to their position and the patriarch. But look at this. Abraham is my forefather, according to the flesh. But what, Paul asked, what did Abraham, your fleshly forefather, find? The answer is, Abraham found grace and discovered that he was justified by faith. And the true descendants of Abraham, therefore, are not found in this fleshly descent, but rather by their faith. If you want to follow in the footprints of Father Abraham, you must be a person of faith because he trusted God. In Galatians, Paul makes a similar argument and puts it this way, Galatians 3, 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and is reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer backed into a corner by the Jews who point to their inheritance in Abraham. Paul in Romans 4 radically reinterprets Abraham's story by reading it sequentially. I want you to notice what Paul does in interpreting the story of Abraham. Okay, Paul argues, if you want to look at Abraham, let's look at Abraham's story. Was it works that made Abraham a-okay with God? I don't think so, Paul proclaims. Now the Jews had pictured Abraham as being justified or made righteous based on all the good deeds, the acts that Abraham had done. If that were the case, however, Abraham could pridefully pat himself on the back, Paul says, Paul takes the Jews back to their own scripture. What does scripture say about Abraham? Look at the end of verse 3. And Abraham believed, and God counted it as righteousness. Eleven times in this verse, the verb for reckoned or account is used. And 10 times, either in a verbal or a noun form, the word righteous or justified is used. This whole chapter is about how to be reckoned as righteous or justified. Obviously, knowing how to be made righteous before God was pretty important to Paul. And I hope is pretty important to us as well. Reckoned was that merchant's meaning of crediting someone's account giving credit on the books. 
Humans cannot obtain righteousness by their own resources, but God credited Abraham as righteous in the divine ledger based on his faith, his belief. How was Abraham reckoned as righteous? Because he was circumcised or because he was willing to do the work of obedience, like being willing to even sacrifice his own son Isaac? Is that what made him righteous? No. Abraham believed in Genesis 15. He's not circumcised till way in Genesis 17. And even further than that, when he attempts to sacrifice his son in obedience. So he believes first, way before the acts or the deeds of obedience or the mark of the sign of being a Jew. Before he ever does anything or is circumcised, it is his faith first. Abraham believed, chapter 15. Paul's secret is to read Abraham's story sequentially and repeat it back to the Jews. In fact, at the time when Abraham was reckoned as righteous, he belonged to the ungodly. At that time, he was a moon-worshiping Mesopotamian. He had no grounds by which to demand anything from the divine ledger. Notice what Paul has done here. Paul has made the Gentile pattern of righteousness by faith normative for Jewish righteousness too. Abraham, not yet circumcised, a Gentile, we might say at the time, not bearing the mark of a Jew, not having the law of the Jews. Abraham believed. God didn't know him anything. It wasn't a wage, verse 4, he'd work for but rather it was a gift from God. What did Abraham, her forefather, find? Abraham found grace. Second of all, forgotten sin, verses 6 through 8. Forgotten sin, look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckoned righteousness apart from the works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Paul uses a Jewish method of interpretation. Gezerah Shewah where you take a word that's in one passage and you find another passage where the same word is used and you explain one text in light of the other based upon that word. Look back at verse 3. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Then look at verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not account, take into account. The word here is reckon or we might say account for Abraham has been an example, and now David steps up as an example too. In fact, as you read Psalm 32, so we have Genesis 15 and Psalm 32 with the same word. As you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 32, David's not doing any good deeds. David's not observing the law. David is having faith in the confession of his sin, and in the confession of his sin, his sin is forgiven by God. When God forgave David's sins, it set him free from the past and set him in right 
relationship with God. Yes, in verses 6 to 8, we, we learn about blessed is David, whose sin the Lord will not take into account. But we learn about not only David's sin, but our sin too. How would it change your life this morning if you really believed that God would not reckon your sins to the divine account? Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. There's our word, reckon, account. What burdens have you been bearing that you need to give over to God? How would it radically change your life this morning to hear the proclamation of the word of the forgiveness of God for your sins, to walk out this door this morning knowing that the sins of the past have been forgotten by God because of the crucifixion of his son? Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account How would it change your life to know that God, because of your faith in Christ, is willing to set you free from the failures of the past? Will you hear the gospel today? You let the power of that forgiveness invade your life like it invaded the life of Abraham and invaded the life of David. Will your name be the third name in the story? small house was simple but adequate. Just one large room on a dusty street, a red tile roof. It was just one of the many houses in this poor neighborhood on the outskirts of a Brazilian village. It was a comfortable home, though, for Maria and her daughter, Christina. They had done all they could to add to the gray walls to add warmth to the dirt floor, an old calendar, a faded photograph of a relative, and a wooden crucifix. The furnishings were modest. There was a a little pallet on each side of the room, a little wood stove, and a wash basin. That's all there was to their humble home. Maria's husband, It died when Christina was an infant. The young mother stubbornly refused the opportunities to remarry and got a job and set out to raise her young daughter herself. Now, 15 years later, the worst of it had been lived through. And though Maria's salary as a maid didn't provide much, it did provide food and clothing. And by now, Christina was old enough to get a job and to help contribute to the household expenses. Some said Christina got her independence from her mother. She recalled the traditional idea of marrying young and raising a family. Now, it wasn't that she couldn't have had her pick of of husbands. She had beautiful olive skin and large brown eyes that kept a steady stream of prospects coming by the little home. She had that infectious way of, of throwing her head back when she laughed. It filled the room with delight. She also had that that rare magic that some women have of making every man they're around feel like he is a king. But it was her spirited curiosity that made her keep all men at arm's length. She spoke so often 
of getting away from the little village and the little home and going to the big city to explore. She dreamed of trading in her dusty neighborhood for exciting avenues and city life. Just that single thought horrified her mother. Maria was always quick to remind Christina of the harshness of the streets. Christina, people don't know you there. Christina, what would you do for a job there? Christina, you need to stay here. Maria knew exactly what Christina would do or would have to do for a living if she went to the big city. And that's why her heart broke one morning when she awakened to see that Christina's little pallet was empty. Maria knew exactly where she had gone and what she had to do in response. She quickly threw some clothes in a bag, gathered up all the money she had, stopped at the drugstore on the way to the bus station, went to a photo booth and spent all of her money printing off little black and white photographs. She boarded the bus and headed to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew that Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. She knew when pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. She went to the bars, she went to the hotels, the nightclubs, anywhere there might be a streetwalker, a prostitute. She went to them all. And in each place, she left a little picture of herself there in a bathroom mirror, a corner, and here on a hotel bulletin board, and here on a phone booth there in the glass. And on the back of each note, she wrote a little message. It wasn't too long until the money and the pictures ran out. Maria wept as she boarded the bus to go home, back to the village. A few weeks later, young Christina descended some hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with joy. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade those countless beds for her little secure pallet. Yet the village was in too many ways too far away now. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes caught the glimpse of a familiar face. It was a picture. She looked again, and there in the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo and turned it over to read on the back. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it does not matter. Come home. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Come home. She did. Abraham, first of all, found grace. And second of all, David's sins were forgiven. Have you found grace? Have your sins been forgiven? The third section is verses 9 through 12. I call it first father. First father. 
Paul takes for granted that Abraham is a forefather of the Jews. Of course he is. He says it in verse 1, our forefather according to the flesh. But he also wants us to know that Abraham is the forefather of the Gentiles too. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, that he received a sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them and the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Remember I told you the secret to reading Romans 4 is that Paul reads the Abraham saga sequentially. Look at the chronological life of Abraham. He asks in verse 9, now who receives the blessing of Abraham? Just the Jews? No, the Gentiles also. Well, let's look at the sequence, Paul says in verse 10. Was he reckoned as righteous while he's circumcised or uncircumcised? Oh, you see, Abraham is called righteous based upon his beliefs before he is ever circumcised. Therefore, Paul is arguing at that point when Abraham is reckoned as righteous, he was the equivalent of a Gentile without circumcision, without the law. Therefore, God could not have reckoned Abraham as righteous because he obeyed the law or because he performed Jewish rites like circumcision. It was only because he was a man of faith in God that he was found righteous. Follow the story. God does not restrict salvation, which comes from being declared upright or righteous only to the circumcised who live under the law. So Abraham is, first of all, father of the Gentiles, for he believes before he's circumcised. First of all, being a Gentile, the moment of his faith, Abraham is father of the Gentiles, and only much later does he become father of the circumcised when he's circumcised in Genesis 17. The mark of the flesh only confirmed the righteousness that Abraham already had because he found it in faith. And Abraham is the father of the circumcised too if they follow in the footsteps of his faith. Here's a third thing, a fourth thing I want you to see, verses 13 through 22, a future promise. Yes, God declared Abraham is righteous, but there's more to the story. God also promised to bless Abraham. His offspring were going to be like the dust of the earth, like the stars of heaven, like the sand of the sea. He also promised to give Abraham an expanse of land. He promised that God would bless all the families of the earth, not just the Jews in Abraham. He would be the father of a multitude of nations. God never intended to restrict the blessings to Abraham's biological heirs. Just read Genesis. Start sequentially in this saga, Paul is saying. 
fact, over in Galatians, he puts it even more bluntly that Moses and the law didn't come until 430 years after God placed a call on Abraham. The faith of Abraham way precedes the law of Moses. And all the law does, verse 15, anyway, is show us that we're falling short of God's expectations. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. They would be the heir of the world by Jewish interpretation. Now, the promised land had grown to be the heir of the whole world. It had eschatological or end-time kingdom of God interpretation. You'll receive the promised land. Oh, no, you'll receive, you'll be the heir of the whole world. The argument goes. Notice how many times the word promise is used in this passage. Verse 13, the promise. Verse 14, the promise. Verse 16, the promise. Verse 20, the promise. The promises of God to Abraham and to Abraham's heirs. The promise of blessing. The promise of many descendants. The promise of inheriting the world, the land. But there's another part of the promise that's the best part of all. Look at verse 17. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him who believed even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and having been fully assured that, he, that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. Look at verse 18, this Sunday of hope, hope upon hope. Abraham didn't have an heir. He's 100 years old, and Sarah's womb is a tomb. How will they ever become a great nation without a son? Hope is the perception of the present based on the premise of God's presence and power. Hope is a perception of the present based upon the premise of God's presence and power. Hope is that which enables us to move into the future because of the reality of God's presence in the now. Are you living in hope today? What does hope look like for your family today? Hope that the O2 levels stay high enough to keep you out of the hospital. Hope that a vaccine will be around the corner. Hope if you're a frontliner that you don't bring the virus home to your kids. Hope that everyone emerges from COVID forever changed, also kinder, more generous, and more Christ-like. Is that hope for you today? The promise of hope. Abraham, a hundred years old. How can it be? He believed. Sarah, the womb, no way. 
but he believed. Notice what he says, that God calls into being which, which is not already there. Well, the final victory, verse 23 through 25. And now for his sake only was it written, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned him, but also for our sake, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, he was also delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Paul always in the end points to Jesus, doesn't he? who brings the culmination of the Christ story into the story of Abraham. Christian's faith is Abraham's faith in the impossible born over again and again. For Abraham believed that which was dead could be made alive. Faith in the same God who had now demonstrated his power afresh with the wonderful resurrection of the Christ. Just like Abraham believed that life had come from the dead womb of Sarah, Christian believed that life could come from the tomb of the dead, the dead Messiah. He reminds us that the wrath of God is poured out on all unrighteousness on the cross. He is crucified, yes, verse 25, for our transgressions, but likewise he is raised from the dead. Chapter 4 reminds us that our right standing before God, our righteousness, reckoned righteous, those two words over and over again are totally divorced from our human performance. But rather, it depends upon our faith response to the promise of God of being the people of hope. We're just like Abraham. We're the sons and daughters of our forefather in the faith, not our forefather in the flesh. And God always begins with nothing, doesn't he? From a wandering, moon-worshipping Mesopotamian to a deceiver named Jacob to a no-name, stiff-necked throng of slaves in Egypt in a brick factory to a little baby in a Bethlehem manger to a thief on a cross to an unknown executioner on Golgotha. God begins with absolutely nothing. So the humans will have no ability to boast. We can no way think that we have merited our way into being righteous. There's nothing about us worth mentioning to God that we can use to our advantage. Our salvation, Paul is saying in Romans 4, is like God standing before a dark void and creating the world. Our salvation, says Paul, is like God taking the dead womb, the withered womb of Sarah, and bringing forth a child to make a great nation. Our faith is like God standing before the dank tomb of her and raising Jesus from the realm of the dead. Humans can only receive salvation by faith. And those who have said yes to faith have been woven into every race from every tribe and every clan and every caste into a new people of God, a single spiritual family called the church. The world does not consist any longer of Jews and Gentiles, but instead of those who say yes to faith and those who remain faithless. What did Abraham, our fleshly forefather, 
Paul, a Jew speaking to Jews, what did he find? Abraham found grace. David found forgiveness. And I hope you have too. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Come home. Let's pray. Oh God, perhaps there's someone here this morning, someone watching by live stream. Today is her day, today is his day to say, I get it now. I can't work my way into God's grace. I can't be born in a position of righteousness by my family. My lineage means nothing. That I, like Abraham, before he is ever a Jew, must say, I believe in the promises of God. And that promise for us is forgiveness of sins and eternal life through the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection of his son. Oh God, we want to be the one for whom you do not take into account our sins. And even now, perhaps there's someone who, who's never said these words but needs to pray them or, or someone who needs to pray them anew. God, I'm a sinner. And I ask God to forgive me. Not because I'm good. Because God is graceful and sent his son Jesus to die, to die in my place. Like Abraham, today I step forth in faith, believing in the unbelievable, hoping in my Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.